0: I've mentioned before that I'm a big fan of the show New Amsterdam, right? I, I've shared that with you. H- any, uh, any other New Amsterdam fans? You, you can admit it. It's good. Your pastor has just admitted that you. if you have not watched New Amsterdam on Thursday nights, you, you just need to. It's a great show, 10 o'clock, NBC, right? Uh, it's a super, super show. The three of you that raised your hands that admitted to watching and liking New Amsterdam, th- this past week, right? This past week, uh, oh, you didn't watch it? Oh, you might want to leave just for a second. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I won't reveal too much, all right? What's that? Oh, you plug your ears. Okay, good. So, uh, Helen Sharp is a character, she's a doctor, on New Amsterdam, and um, she, in this last episode, this past week, was filming a public service announcement for the hospital, New Amsterdam, uh, inviting people to come back to the hospital because because of COVID, they've stayed away for uh, numerous reasons, and so she was asked to create a PSA, uh, and in that PSA, a public service announcement, in that PSA, there was a line that said, here at New Amsterdam, we are confident... And she was supposed to say, we're confident that everything's going to be okay and that it's okay to come back and all this stuff. But she could only get that far. So several times, she, in this PSA, at New Amsterdam, we were confident that she would stop. And, and the director was like, what's, what's wrong? She says, I can't continue. And then with a moment of great honesty, she says this. You hear Helen Sharp's heart. And, and I think this is where people today resonate this is what Dr. Sharp says. I'm confident, I'm not confident of anything right now. To tell you the truth, I am terrified most of the time because we are living in a dystopian nightmare. And the PSA director, who's trying to uh, create some sort of semblance in the midst of this PSA, says to her, But people need reassurance. Dr. Sharp continues, Do they? The people I know want to stop feeling scared, and I can't reassure them of that. So you can't ask me to stand here and say we are confident, and there is nothing to be afraid of, when everyone should be afraid. Max, who is the director of operations at the hospital, is standing in the back, and he asks, so what do we do? And Helen Sharp, before she walks out of the room, says, we need to tell people the truth. Listen, uh, this virus, no matter what you think about it, has been scary. And it has pulled the rug out on many people. Some physically, for sure, but almost everyone emotionally in some way. But life's scariest moments are, are not contained with a strange virus. We know this, right? Life's scariest moments are not even in an election that didn't kind of go the way you thought it would or wanted it to. Life's scariest moments not even in, in the fear of, of any polarizing thought that seems to be tearing apart the seams of our culture. Some of life's scariest moments are the ones that happen close to home. Like the loss of a loved one, as we all lost Peggy this week. The fear of financial despair. Broken relationships. Disease. You you with me? Anybody who's not faced scary moments, I don't know, put your headphones in, listen to good music the rest of the time, because you are the exception, and I'll share with the rest of you who are honest enough to admit that there are Scary moments in life. The world, our friends, even the church, even pastors try to be reassuring. They try to be comforting. But sometimes it comes up empty. So Max asks, what do we do? And Pastor Rick says this morning, says we tell the truth. Because in the truth is where we will find Jesus. Helen Sharp's truth was not the same thing as my truth in New Amsterdam. But it is the truth of the gospel that we need to hear. And listen, Easter is a really good time to tell the truth. So we interrupt our ongoing series in Elisha this morning to focus on Easter. Today, next Sunday, Palm Sunday, Good Friday at 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary in Easter. I am striving, seeking that we might be encouraged in the truth that no matter what the scary thing in life is, no matter what life can hand us, that we would live in a glorious day in which God is making, listen, all things new. And in that truth, find our hope. So here's where we start this morning. I'm going to tell you that it is a glorious day. Right? So look at someone who may be seated far away from you, right? But maybe someone close. Which, this is... I'm going to use Peggy Portal all I can. This is for Peggy Portal, right? You're going to look at somebody in the sanctuary this morning and go, it's a glorious day. Yeah. There, there, there you go. Whew. It's like an old engine. It just needed primed, right? Here we go. Right? It is a glorious day. Listen, let me share that truth this morning from Revelation 21. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to turn there. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read the first seven verses of Revelation 21. And we're going to discover today that it is indeed a glorious day. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. This is the very word of God Then I saw, I being John, who is in the midst of a glorious vision, right? He sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Hear the word of the Lord. And may indeed he help us to understand it this morning, that we might... Discover that it is indeed a glorious day. Now, first point this morning in thinking about it being a glorious day is what God will do. We're going to consider this text as the not yet, right? But you have to admit, what I just read is a glorious day, right? It's a glorious day that many of us anticipate, look forward to, thrive for, wait on, right? It is a glorious day. Quickly, let's look at the text. There, it says at the beginning of the text that there is a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we get that. What John's seeing is something that looks very different than what he knows. It appears new. But I would suggest to you that what he sees is actually something ancient being restored. That this new heaven and this new earth is something that has been in existence before. It was called the Garden of Eden. One of the very cool things of this text is, is that what is described is, is here is the restoration of that garden, that garden of Eden before sin hit it. It's the perfection of the garden that Adam and Eve walked in with oneness with God. You remember that story, right? God creates the heaven and the earth and he creates man to dwell with him in it. Genesis 1 and 2, that would be a good place to go this afternoon and read if you haven't. Then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve do the one thing that God says not to do because of the lies of satan and sin enters the world not just for adam and eve but listen for all mankind the world becomes broken and at the end of chapter three it says he god drove out the man and at the east of the garden of eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life now there's a lot here it would be fun to spend a lot of time I'm But I just want us to hear this morning that at this moment, something happened that we still live in, that that man is thrust from the perfection of God and from the Garden of Eden into a world of brokenness, a brokenness that is recognized by all of us. It's that brokenness that scares us that we fear. But in Revelation 21, God is revealing to John that a day is coming. When all of that is miraculously and marvelously reversed, there is a new, a restored heaven and earth. And the cherubim and the flaming sword that turns all different directions, which is pretty cool to think about, is removed. And we are given entrance once again to the perfection of the garden. He came back here, right? All right. So, right? I mean, I, I, know, I know in your mind and in your heart you're going, Yeah, I want that day. Right? That, that's beautiful. But it goes on. It just doesn't stop in a new heaven and an earth. Listen, it goes on. John says, See the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepares a bride adorned for her husband. The city... This city kind of goes, right? You ready for that? Hang on, need duct tape today. This city is mind-blowing. You can see more details of it given later in chapter 21, and it's a cool study. But for our simple minds, I want you to first just get the size of this city, right? The size of the city, roughly... 1,258 square miles big. So, to give you some reference to that, it's Sharon to Miami, Florida, in four dimensions. <laughs> right? That city comes from the heavens. And later, as I said, and later in 21, it gives us some description of that. In Verse 18 will be on the screen. The, the wall was built with jasper while the city was pure gold. Like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. I think it's cool that there are 12 jewels mentioned here. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the first, fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh of chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Somebody's coming now for you because your mind just went <laughs> Right? The, the beauty that John sees of the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming from the heavens is beyond imagination. So, so for some of us, we, we need to imagine this is how my mind works anyways. You, you might need to imagine the coolest, brightest, most adorned, Large Star Trek thing, right, coming from the heavens. You know, you've seen those episodes, right? Where the Star Trek, like whole cities that people live in, all the kind of stuff. Like, but but that that doesn't even really capture it, right? It's just this reality of this amazing thing that God says is going to happen, and it doesn't stop there. There's a loud voice that comes from the throne in the city, saying, "This, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man." He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Quite frankly, this might be the coolest thing of all. Remember, as sin entered the world, we have been separated from God. And while God has promised to be our God and we his people, we his people have wandered from that, causing all kinds of struggles, pain, weeping, which has made us scared. God has given us hints of this moment in Revelation 21, throughout history, he gave Israel the tabernacle. Remember that? As they wandered through the wilderness, it was a man-made tent, and in that tent was the holy place, and in that holy place was the place that what God dwelt. But they couldn't access it. And from the tabernacle came the temple, and in the temple there was the Holy of Holies. And the priest would only go once a year, and they would even have to tie a rope to his leg in case something happened, because nobody else could go in. And if something happened to him, they would have to have a way of getting him out. And he went into the Holy of Holies in order to offer sacrifices for the sin of the people, because he would be in the presence of God. And then comes Jesus who came and tabernacled, dwelt among us. Hint after hint after hint of the reality of this moment in time. And then you remember at the crucifixion and the reality that as Jesus died, what? The the curtain in the temple which separated the Holy of Holies tore in two supernaturally. As if to say, through this death... You will again be given access. But people still lived in this place of sin and at a distance with God. Until this day, this glorious day, when there is a voice that thunders from this amazing city, in this amazing place, the new heavens and the new earth, that says, Behold, that is all done. I am your God, you are my people, and I am with you. It's restored. Complete restoration, and ladies and gentlemen, this is the context for the verse that I've been asking you to memorize now for I don't know six seven weeks. The same voice from Revelation twenty one five says the picture is the picture of God on His throne, bellowing with joy in this place. Behold, I'm making all things new. I'm restoring all things to the way I made it. At the beginning. It is why here God reminds us that He is the Alpha and the Omega. The very first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He is the beginning and the end. And for those who are His, He will always provide for. They will never thirst for life. And they will always be protected. Always conquerors that He will be our God and we will forever be His children. This is a glorious day. But you say, Pastor, I agree, man. Can't wait for that day. But isn't that day in the future? What do you have to say to me today? Didn't you say that this series had something to do with Easter? I'm glad you asked. Because as glorious as this day in the future is, it provides us with the fact that we live, listen, in a glorious day now that has everything to do with Easter and the resurrection. What God will do is the not yet, but this text also speaks to us as what God is doing, the now. Let's think about the life of John for just a moment. The dude who had this vision that is recorded in Revelation, right? He's just a simple fisherman. And one day, he hears the voice of Jesus who says, drop your nets and follow him. That made no sense. There was no rational reason why he should follow, why he should do that. So he set up a team of Presbyterians to have a meeting to discuss the value of whether it is that he should do this or not. he, He did actually, it just says he dropped his nets and went. Crazy dude, right? This is John. John's heart could do nothing else than follow Jesus. John then takes an amazing three-year journey with Jesus, seeing his miracles, hearing his teaching, recognizing the amazing love of God through Jesus. He refers to himself, even in his own letter, the Gospel of John, as the one whom Jesus loved. He is the only disciple present at the crucifixion, attending to the mother of Jesus, Mary. He is the first disciple at the tomb when he heard that Jesus was no longer dead just because he was a little bit faster than Peter. And in John chapter 20, verse 8, it tells us that as John went into the tomb, he saw and believed. That's an interesting phrase. This is the resurrection. He saw and believed. Uh, the word saw there is not a simple sight like I see Andrew Redding sitting in the fourth pew. Rather, it is a sight That has reason involved in it. He's theorizing. He's thinking. Why this kind of sight? Because what he saw in that tomb made no sense. The grave clothes were there. His faith cloth folded. That didn't make sense. You see, if Jesus had been stolen by his enemies or taken by his friends, they wouldn't have uncovered the body. If Jesus somehow wasn't dead, these are all the theories that come in the resurrection, right? If Jesus somehow wasn't dead, he just kind of passed out for a while and thought he was dead and was holding his breath for a really long time, and, and, and all of a sudden he came to, like, these gray clothes are wound tight, They would have had to have been ripped and shredded and torn in order for him to get out. That's not what John found. He found grave clothes and a face cloth that is folded. He saw and he's thinking, how did that happen? Some love to share the reality that the folded face cloth was even a sign to John and to Peter and later to all the disciples of Jesus' return. This had to be going through his head. In short, it was a sight that would leave someone befuddled unless you knew the truth. Unless you knew that Jesus said he was coming back from the dead. The great theologian, Sherlock Holmes, not really, says, when you have eliminated the possible Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That's why we read that John saw and what? Believed. At that very moment, he knew that Jesus was back. So so John takes his remaining years to serve the risen Savior, and and this comes at a cost. He was persecuted for his faith. Some traditions say that he was tarred and feathered by the Roman government as a way to both shame him and kill him, but somehow he survived, and then they were like scared to death of him, so they exiled him on an island where there was no other resources other than natural resources. It was called an island called Patmos. So here John is, as kind of the guy on a deserted island by himself, surviving, and God shows up with a a vision called Revelation. And I come to my point, what do you think the vision of Revelation 21 meant to John as he saw it? Was it just a, John, hold on, buddy, I'm coming back. Was it, just wait long enough, baby. I know it's really bad, I know it's really scary, but... Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and hang on because this is all going to happen. Is it just a future tense thing? I would suggest no. I would suggest that much more than just putting the pieces of the resurrection, uh, being just a hold on to thing, that it is a putting of the pieces of the resurrection and the second coming together. A, A message, listen, more than I am coming, but a message of I am here. That as John awoke from this vision and again found himself on a deserted island, seemingly by himself and in the place that he would eventually die, a scary place, he knew that he was not alone. But rather that he lived, you ready? In a glorious day a day that had the proof of the resurrection as a significant signpost, that God was making all things new, that he was doing it now and that he would finish it in glorious fashion in a day that had not yet occurred, that God was revealing a truth that would cause John to have faith in that day, the day that he lived. Tim Keller in a new book that he's written during a fight with pancreatic cancer you want to talk about a scary place a hard place while he's struggling with pancreatic cancer he's written this book and you'll hear a lot from it in the next weeks he says this the resurrection was indeed a miraculous display of god's power but we should see it as a, we should not see it as a suspension of the natural order of the world Rather, it was the beginning of the restoration of the natural order of the world as God intended it to be. More simply put, this last phrase, the resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future, but they have a hope that comes from the future. That we need to look at Revelation 21 and look backwards to where we are scared. That John would have seen the vision and applied it to the reality of His place. The resurrection tells us that as we wait for the Revelation 21 glorious day, that we live today in a glorious day. My last point this morning is just that. Some quick application of this to your life. Because we live in a day not unlike John did as he wrote Revelation We may not be banished on an island because of our faith, but we live in a day where there are things like pancreatic cancer, where there is the death of our friends and our family, in a day where there are stillborn deaths of those who are close to us. We live in a day of Viruses that seemingly change everything. We live in a day of sin, in a day of struggle. We live in brokenness, left to feel like our only option is just to hold on till Revelation 21 comes. But that is not the truth. And Helen Sharp says we need to be talking about the truth. The truth is is that we live in a glorious day where we can know about the resurrection while we yearn for Revelation 21. We live in a day where we know that God is here, that God is real. And Tim Keller, in Tim Keller-like fashion, provided a number of charts and graphs that I could put up on the screen. We could go study and see lots of really cool things that would be fun to look at as graphs and charts, but my mind needed to go to a much simpler place. So I chose this picture. My boy obviously lives in a broken place, right? He's poor barely has clothes that somehow cover his body. Poverty has struck him. (laughs) But my boy's dancing. Right? This to me is the best picture, better than any graph I could show you, of the now and the not yet. The reality of his now is a place of brokenness. But he obviously lives for a place that he does not yet know. And I just wonder if we might keep looking at him to see ourselves. Of living in brokenness. Living in places of fear. But with joy. Today is an invitation to do so. To join John as he walked into the tomb. To find the grave clothes as evidence that Jesus was risen from the dead. To see and believe than to hold on to that as you read the vision of Revelation 21 and behold the things that God has yet to do. But in all of that, know that God is very much here, very much present, very much in your brokenness and very much ready to restore all that has been broken, to make all things new, to live in the spirit of this boy, to believe that in all things... God is doing a new thing. To trust that in all things, God is doing a new thing. Do you believe that today? Do you trust it? Do you know that indeed, while there is a glorious day coming, that today... Today is a glorious day.